Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, we continue to work through our series, The Messiah's Mission. And today we're going to look at praying for harvest laborers. Praying for harvest laborers. We'll be in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38 in just a moment. While you're turning there and getting ready, let me begin with a a story. At the start of this year, I made a commitment to myself, mostly to the Lord, to pray about those matters that weighed heaviest on my heart and mind uh, more than I would speak of or talk about them. Now, for some of you, that's probably not a, a big deal, right? For a preacher to shut his mouth and to not speak is never a small issue, right? Uh, but, but the point was, I wanted to open the window of prayer because I knew that's what I needed to be doing. That would be more effective than anything I could say. And I wanted to see God work Well, I wish I could stand before you halfway in, halfway through the year and report to you how well I have done. I will not give a report on the specifics, but here's what I will tell you about this. I'm learning a lot and I will tell you that when I have practiced this most fervently and in some very heavy situations, I've experienced greater joy, greater peace, greater harmony and relationship both with God but also with other people and Quite frankly, I think my eyes have been more open to see Godward movement in the situations that were weighing heaviest on me. You see, I I don't believe God is just changing everything for the way that I want it. I don't mean that. I do aim to make my request as clear as I am able before the Lord in obedience to him. He commands us, make your request known to God. Cast all your cares upon him. Doesn't matter how hard, how broken, how messed up it may be, bring it to him. It's not too much for him. That's his command to us. But I confess far too often there are things that I would just prefer to rant over and to give vent to my spirit and then blame something or someone when it doesn't turn out the way I wanted it to. I mean, if if I'm just, I'm sorry for some of you who didn't know me and that's the first introduction you have to me. But that's just a bent of my spirit far too often. But I've learned this. Venting only produces toxic fumes that harm and hurt others. And Proverbs 29 says it's a fool's activity to give full vent to his spirit. I don't want to be a fool in this world unless it's a fool for Christ. I want to add more life to the world, not more toxicity. I think there's enough of that already, don't you? Thank you. I was like, whoa, am I the only one? Come on. I am learning that the healthiest and the most beneficial way to exhaust the zeal of my spirit, specifically the angst of my spirit, that also serves the Lord's harvest, is to use that zeal to supercharge the earnestness of my prayers for his kingdom. That's what I'm learning. That's not what I've perfected, okay? I wanna ask you a question. Do you believe prayer works? 
Do you believe prayer works? I, I don't mean some generic activity that anyone can practice with an equal outcome. No, we as Christians don't believe that. But I mean prayer to the only one who is effective to whom we, I mean, that, that's what makes our prayers effective, is it not? It's the one to whom we pray, not the fact that we go through some exercise or activity of religion. But when we pray according to God's word and by his spirit, are you convinced of the power of prayer that moves you to pray more, to pray more fervently, to pray more effectively, and even with greater faithfulness? I think that's the lesson that I'm trying to learn, that I sense most in my spirit that I need to learn. Too often I want to solve things by just letting them run circles in my mind. And it's like Olympics of the mind. What gets to win today's crown, right? And it's never a real win for anyone. But when I allow that to fuel my prayers, I begin to find this. There's a lot less running going on in here and a lot more heat beginning to heat up in my heart. Not in anxiety, but rather in depth of conviction, of settledness, of, of peace and of of joy, just a satisfaction. And so today I hope this message helps and encourages all of us in this. I believe that's what God wants to say to us today. Not just the effectiveness of prayer, but in understanding what we will walk away with today, that it leads us to a deeper participation and conversation, prayer with God. Let's go to Matthew 9. Verse 35 to 38. Matthew records, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. These four verses are a refrain in Matthew's gospel. What do I mean by that? You know what a refrain is. It's, it's probably easiest for us to understand it in the way it's set within a song. So a refrain is typically a short one sentence or one sometimes only a single phrase but it's a punch phrase regularly repeated that really culminates the whole message of the song for instance let's do a little group exercise here for a moment okay are you ready when I point at you you finish okay all right get ready get ready I know some of you right now are going I'm not going to do this I'm not going to do this yes you are yes you are okay here it goes hallelujah highest praise Name above all other names. Through earth and heaven, let it resound. Lifted to the highest place, name above all other names. Through earth and heaven, let it resound. Yeah, that's just, bam, right? He bore a cross, he wears a crown. I mean, that, that's the whole message of the song right there and everything else is just an unpacking of it. What Matthew is doing in these four verses, he gives us the punch of this gospel message until this point, 
but also to see the rest of what's going to transpire. The first time we see this refrain is in chapter four, verse 23. And it emphasizes Jesus's authority by introducing his ministry and the people's response to it. So when we first see Jesus come onto the scene and Matthew begins to show that he is God and he is man, and ultimately Matthew's whole point of his gospel is to introduce Jesus as the Messiah. We've talked about this. And what does it mean by Messiah? But that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that word is Christ. But it is a, it is an, a recognition of exaltation, that he's not just a man, he's far more than only just a man. He is God, he is God's Messiah. And so his first refrain introduces the authority with which he came. And at the end of chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, we see this kind of the period at the end of the sentence, or even you might say the exclamation point, when the people go, he spoke as one with authority that none had ever done before. Everything that Matthew was saying in chapter four through the refrain, we see unpacked and we see completed and affirmed by the people's response to him. And then when we come to chapter eight, Matthew takes a turn. It's not just that Jesus has come as the kingdom of God, because that was his message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But now he begins to move into the second phase of his gospel of calling and sending followers to engage his mission. And so what is it that Matthew is declaring in this refrain but that Jesus holds sufficient authority and power to address people's problems. But more laborers are needed to address the greatest of the harvest. Here's what I want you to walk away with today, friends. Jesus calls Christ followers to engage his kingdom mission by praying for more harvest laborers. He's calling us to engage his kingdom mission by praying for more harvest labors. Now today we're going to see two recognitions that compel Christ's followers to engage the kingdom mission with one prayer. One prayer. Here we go. Recognition number one is the all-sufficient Savior. The grace and the truth of God has come in authority and power. We've already seen this, but now we're seeing it applied and carried out. You see, the central message of Matthew's gospel is that God has come in glory and grace, in the glory rather, of grace and truth as an all-sufficient Savior. That's what Matthew means when he gives Jesus the title of Messiah. He's telling the Jewish audience that he's principally writing to that are the recognized people of God. They know this, but he's saying to them, he is the Messiah. This is the one that for hundreds, yea, thousands of years, all of your history and all of the writings of your law have been pointing to the Messiah that would come. And Matthew says, I'm telling you, Jesus is the one. That's what he's saying. He is the all-sufficient Savior that has been promised time and time again by God. And so he's provided a snapshot of his ministry to recognize his all-sufficiency. You couldn't look at the words nor the works of Jesus and go, ah, this is somebody other, but he ain't God. No, as a matter of fact, what he tells us is everybody listened to him and went, he's not just a man. 
And they saw what he did and went, men don't just do that. Like, like when he says, stop, and the waves do it. You know, that people don't just do that, but this people do. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's what he's introducing to us here. And, and it says that, that Jesus went into the teachings, or excuse me, the synagogues and, and proclaiming the gospel in those synagogues. This is a pattern that Matthew is showing that God has come to his people as he promised, but that he wouldn't stop with his people, but rather would call his people to go to all peoples. Paul would follow this same practice in the book of Acts when he, after his own conversion and born-again experience, would begin to go into the cities. He would begin with the synagogues if there was one. Why? Because he was calling the people of God to engage in the mission of God for the glory of God. I want to point out three profound aspects from this first verse that show us this all-sufficient Savior. First of all, it's very simple. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. It was Jesus who went to the people. Listen, friends, you don't just stumble upon God. You don't just happen to find God like a needle in a haystack. Wow, there it is. I found it. No, friends, every time you encounter God, it's because he is the one who has been pursuing you. He is the one who has come to seek you out. He is the one that is working for you and we must recognize this first. Any and every time someone encounters God, it's always because he is the initiator. He is the one pursuing. God is the one who is working. And then it tells us that Jesus, his ministry was marked by teaching truth and proclaiming God's grace. John tells us that he came full of grace and truth. And that's instrumental for us to understand in understanding the whole ministry of Jesus. His teaching was distinctively marked by God's law, which he had come to fulfill. Matthew's already told us in chapter 5, verse 17, that Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it. In other words, the law's not the problem. It's your broken, darkened understanding of it that's the problem. And I am the manifestation of it. Because you took the hardness of truth and you want to beat people over the head with rules and with regulations that only can do nothing more than show them their helpless state. But I come in truth and grace. And when we finish showing people their helpless state, we point them to the one who is their capital H helper. That's what truth and grace is all about. And he calls them to repent. He calls us to repent where the law of God shows us our sin and that conviction of the Spirit of God pricks our heart and we turn from our wrongful ways and we turn to trust in Him. You see, truth and grace is teaching that raises God's law so sin can be identified for it is God and it is God alone who says what sin is and what sin is not. That's not a personal perspective. God didn't leave it so we can all determine the own standard for our morality. He is truth. He is righteousness. He is right and in him is no wrong. He came teaching truth and grace. Teaching God's law that helps us show us our own helpless state. 
Not only is this sin, but when we live in that sin, we are helpless to do anything about our sin. Without him, there is no hope for us. But he becomes our help who brings hope. And that preaching declares the one who has come to save, Jesus Christ. Friends, you always miss Jesus and you're always left with nothing more than dead religion when grace and truth are ever preached absent of the other. Truth beats people up and leaves them in a dark and helpless state, condemned, frustrated. Grace builds people up fictitiously believing that there's more value and worth and ability in them than that which is against them and leaves them to continue to try in their own or just dismiss that which is burdening them down and they don't need help. Either one preached absent of the other is the same condemnation that leaves people in a helpless state. Only when they are brought together, that's what Jesus does. He is truth, he is grace together. And the third significant aspect we see of this all-sufficient Savior is that Jesus is revealed as sufficient and willing to minister to everyone he encountered. Would, would you go back to verse 35 with me for just a moment and just, just let it sink in. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Let, let this sink in, friends. Jesus never encountered a situation that he could not fully satisfy. Just think about that for a moment. He was never confronted by anything that made him flinch. He was never overwhelmed. He was never made anxious. He was never left speechless. He was perfectly sufficient in every situation that he encountered. Friends, hear me. The kingdom of God is the first recognition that we need to come to today of an all-sufficient Savior. That it is only advanced by Jesus' authority and power. Not our ability, not our ingenuity, not our accomplishment, but by his truth and grace and the all-sufficiency of who he is. Well, that verse is definitely contrasted against verse 36 and our second recognition. Let's go to verse 36. It says this, when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The second recognition that we need today in contrast to the first being an all-sufficient savior is the second an insurmountable problem. People are hopelessly and helplessly condemned and enslaved. Matthew uses these two words to describe people harassed and helpless. Like sheep, he says, without a shepherd. Now, without a shepherd, sheep may not directly harm themselves, right? They're not overly aggressive animals, specifically against themselves. They may bump into each other every now and then, but I'm sure they go, oh, pardon me, you know, uh, and, then, and, and then move on with their day. They're kind of nice to each other, but here's the problem with sheep. Though they don't harm themselves, they do, out of the own ignorance of their vulnerability, put themselves in harm's way. 
and they're not even aware of it. That's what Jesus means. They don't even, they don't live with the recognition or the awareness of how it is they put themselves into harm's way. But that's what they do. And that word for harassed, it's an interesting word. It's a word that means annoyed and troubled by something from within. Not even from the threats on the outside, but, but from something within. So when Jesus looked at the crowds of people, he said that he was moved with compassion because he could see within them and what it was that was troubling and annoying them. There was a general sense of angst about life but they didn't even know it. So often they weren't even aware of it. And the sense was that that they were so grievously affected by this harassment internally that it was literally tearing them apart. And they either didn't know it or didn't have any way to do anything about it. That's a very succinct and accurate picture that Matthew paints of people in sin's condemnation. You see, sin has many outward acts of destruction, but none of those are greater than the destruction that burns within and the condemnation and guilt within. It destroys from within and it leaves helpless to do anything about it, even when we become aware of it. I think harassed and helpless is one of the most accurate and easily observable descriptions of society today. Now, I think it's true of people of all times, but I'm gonna talk a little bit about how I think it is most accurate of us today. About two decades ago, 16 or so years ago, we began to hear the dangers of moral therapeutic deism. If you go back and look at some of my sermons from, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, because I was kind of late getting to the party on this, uh, you'll you'll hear me talk about this and and talk about it. And moral therapeutic deism was just a very simple understanding, was this belief that, you know, God wants us to do good, and he wants me to feel good, too. And it always seems that second little part was more important than the first part, right? We'll get to the second part, and I got to get here first. But it seems the last decade, we've become so frustrated with our overall lack of moral gain because we just can't stop living jacked up. We finally said, you know what, forget it. And there have been many different manifestations of that last phrase. And now we live in a place where we've dismissed the value of morality, we've thrown off moral restraint, and we've taken to deconstructing our faith in order to remove what we believe to be the validity and the reality of God so that we're only left with what I'm labeling as therapeutic meism. Don't worry about the morals and don't worry about God. Just get yourself taken care of. You know what deconstructing faith is? It's blaming others, namely God, in the name of God. Now you might ask, what is therapeutic deism? I'm glad you asked. I plan to tell you. As a matter of fact, that's just a term that I made up to identify the prevailing ideology of what most describes today. Whatever makes me feel good, that's what I should do. Now if you're over the age of 40, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but this is nothing more than a different way of saying the same thing they've been saying all our life. 
If it feels good, do it. That's been around my whole life. It actually started before my life began. It actually started a lot longer than that. In contemporary words, therapeutic meism says, what I need to do to quell my anxiety must not only be accepted, but it must be championed by others. Or if they don't champion my anxiety needs, they're bullying me, they're victimizing me, or they're traumatizing me. You see the self-defense posture this breeds. It's nothing new for sure. It's merely the next mutation of sin's dark deception cast upon those of us who are harassed and helpless without Christ. You see, friends, listen to me. I'm about to say some things that you might not agree with, and that's okay. I'm just asking you to consider them soberly. And I'm not saying, well, I'll qualify it as I walk through it, or I'll be here qualifying it all day before I say it. All the therapy in the cosmos will never work out sin's guilt and shame without Jesus. Let me unpack it a little more. Do you know what harassed and helpless is labeled today? Anxiety. Anxiety that plagues our world today. Listen to me. It is the leading mental health issue of our generation. And by this generation, I don't mean just people who are young. I mean all of us who are alive today. That includes you. It is a manifestation of sin's harassment. And when Jesus looks down upon us, he doesn't just see us, he sees what's in us. And I want to remind you of verse 35. He has compassion for you. He sees you in your worst. And his response to you is compassion for you. Because he knows the state of your worst and your best. You see, I'm not reducing or dismissing the significance of anxiety that is plaguing in the mental health issues of our day. Not at all but neither am I willing to dismiss them from their true root and source. And I'm not saying you shouldn't seek help. If you talk to me one-on-one, -on -one, one of the first things I'll help you diagnose is what kind of help you do need. But listen to me, here's what I wanna get at. Though we know it, we don't want to admit it. More than not, in the vast majority of times, it is self-induced by a source we recognize, but we don't wanna deal with. Constant contact we are constantly connected now if you go back to some of those earlier sermons of mine you'll hear me talking about the busyness of our life and the way we wind ourselves up and sometimes in all the good things of life but we get so wound up in the good we end up making it God we came to the point at some point in the past where we allowed electricity to make us believe we could live as long as it was on. And with solar power, we don't even need the grid, right? I mean, we can live 24-7 as if we need no time down, no darkness to let us rest our bodies and our minds. And that's not true. Some of you are living under the weight of trying to come to grips with that. But that has morphed. We not only believe that we can constantly be doing, we believe that we are constantly connected. Everything, all at once, all the time. We call it 
social media, but it's far more than just social media, friends. That's just merely a conduit for us. It is not the true source. Listen to what the true source is. Those things of our constant connectedness are simply stirring up something much more deep, much more dark within us. It's materialism. It is greed. It is envy. It is jealousy. It is lust. And it is every sinful evil listed in the Bible that just gets stirred up. It may be sourced from what is outside, but the root of your problem is not flowing from the outside. It's rooted deep within you. And when Jesus looked on the crowds and said they were harassed and they're helpless, he's talking about the sinful nature that separates us from God and there is nothing we can do about it without him. But we're trying. Oh man, we're trying. We want everybody to believe something about us that we know not to be true about ourselves, but that's what we're willing to do. But listen, social media did not create that facade. People have been living under those auspices their entire life. Since Adam and Eve, they've been trying to put forth something that they knew was not true. But because their hearts were hard and would not submit to God, they just had to keep trying and keep trying. And they find themselves helpless because the sin, the guilt, the shame, the condemnation does not go away. The harder they try, the heavier it weighs on them. This is the insurmountable problem that Jesus is talking about, friends. Harassed and helpless. And all the therapy in the world cannot remove the stain of sin that's tearing us apart from inside, whether we know it or not. So what was his response? Compassion. Compassion. The love that sent Jesus produced compassion for people when he saw the crowd. If I'm honest with you today, man, I'm just confessing all of my worst traits this morning. I know some of you though, and I know I'm in good company. <laughs> I'm all too familiar with a loveless response. Well, they just probably got what they deserved. Play stupid games. That's right, that's right. And sometimes that's what we do. We just stupid. I mean, we just play stupid games and then we wonder why the prize didn't measure up to the glory. Well, you did it to yourself. You got to sleep in the bed you made, right? I mean, we've got all these phrases. Those probably aren't even the best ones. But all of them are a way for us to try and rationalize and to deal with the patheticness of other people's lives because we so often don't see our own. You see, friends, when love for God does not compel you, compassion for people will not move you. Because you'll only look at them for what you can do. Well, I told them what was right. They didn't listen. You'll only look at them for what you understand, what you want to do. But when love for God compels you, that, that's what was the driving heartbeat of Jesus, when love for God compels you, you will sacrifice to labor until the true need of people meets the authority and the power of God and Jesus Christ to forgive them and to cleanse them of their sin. And this is the gospel. 
This is the refrain that Matthew is punching us with. There is an all-sufficient Savior and there is an insurmountable problem. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Matthew culminates the whole message of the gospel in one refrain. The one who's all-sufficient in sovereign authority and power stands ready to meet and to minister to those who live in an insurmountable problem. These two recognitions must move us, Christian. We know the one who is help for the harassed, who is hope for the helpless, who is truth for the deceived, who is grace for the condemned. Such a great contrast. But the glory is within the one who shows them both to us. And so Jesus, verse 37 turns and speaks to his disciples and friends you might as well if you're a Christian here today settle in he would say these words to you today with the same conviction he spoke them in that day then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest an all-sufficient savior an insurmountable problem can only be resolved with one earnest intercession. Lord, send more laborers to the great harvest. You see, Jesus says this, there's a labor crisis in kingdom work. We know what labor crisis is about, right? I went to a restaurant a couple of weeks ago and they were closed on Monday. They're always closed on Monday. That's not a problem. I'm fine to give them a day off. This was a Tuesday. How dare they inconvenience me and where I chose to eat lunch on that day by being closed. And I saw the owner standing out front and he may or may not recognize me from the regularity of being in his business. And he said, I said, what's going on? He said, I got to give my help some rest. I don't have enough to cover all the days. I went, you sorry loser. I'm hungry. No, I didn't say that. Come on. I'm not that pathetic of an individual. You see, Jesus was not bemoaning the situation. He was highlighting the need. That, that's important for us, friends. The labor crisis for the kingdom harvest was spoken to a few against the backdrop of the multitudes. And what Jesus is saying is, man, we got a big problem. We need more people to help us get after it. You say, no, we have an absolute sovereign and sufficient answer. Let's take it to them. There's a big difference in the way you perceive this earnest prayer. And the one that Jesus is commending to us is he's showing us the greatness, the the preparedness of the harvest. And the way he uses that word, he says, man, it's ready it's ready. I mean, we can look at the world today and we can go, man, we're headed to hell in a handbasket. Or we can look at the world and go, we are right on the cusp. I mean, God's right on the edge of doing something. Why? Because people are reaching the end of themselves. They don't have any other place to turn. How many of you said, you know, I've got 10 good options to consider for my own life, but I think I'll just forgo everything that I can do and I'll try Jesus. 
No, I don't know about you, but I was at the end of myself. Lord, I've done everything. I don't have any other ideas, let alone strength or energy to go at it. I have no more hope. That's when the glory of Christ shone through, shattered the darkness. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Tell them that the harvest is ready. Tell them that people are in great need and they don't even know it. But the helper is here. The helper is here. Listen, friends. Jesus was not overwhelmed by the demand of need. He simply states the readiness of the harvest. A great sin and crowd of sinners, great deception and darkness, great confusion and chaos in the world is never a cause for Jesus to get discouraged, overwhelmed, or to believe that the situation is hopeless. Jesus didn't look at the Father and begin deconstructing the mission. I knew I shouldn't have come down here. These people didn't have any hope to begin with. We're not doing any good. Look how pathetic they're all living. All of them are carrying their stupid trophies around. That's not what he said. He said, they're ready. They're ready. You see, it was his heart that caused his eyes to see them that way. A heart full of the Father, not of the world. A heart full of the Father's will, not his own. That's what caused him to see that. You see, Jesus is the answer, friends, but he is not the only messenger. He calls followers to engage his kingdom mission by recognize, recognizing the great disparity and interceding to the Lord to send more laborers. So what must we do? Therefore, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more Laborers. Jesus didn't say go tell. Jesus didn't say go do. But first of all, Jesus said pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. You see, friends, prayer is not our catalyst. Uh, prayer is not only our catalyst to stir God's heart or even to address the needs of others. God help these dear people. They are carrying all their stupid trophies. No, that's not what he's saying. But prayer is our catalyst asking God to move in us as he has ordained, as he has willed, that he might move others through us. We pray first because when we work, we accomplish what we can do. If we go to work, we'll do some good things. We'll address people's needs. We'll, we'll help them with the little problems that we can help them with from our perspective, our strength, and our first priorities. But we'll miss God's good and God's power. But when we pray first... We recognize this. We are bringing a sufficient sovereign savior to an insurmountable problem. And he's never encountered any situation that he wasn't fully sufficient to satisfy. We got this. When's the last time you looked at the world with that, those eyes and that perspective? You see, when we pray first, we recognize God, what he wants to do, what he can do. And we see people beyond the facade that they have put forth to address those real needs. When we pray first, we do so because the Lord who saves is the Lord who sends his people as harvest laborers. You see, this command to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers is not a prayer for other people first and foremost. It's a prayer for his disciples. 
Because when you pray for the kingdom, you're not praying for all of that. You're praying for this right here. You're asking God to move in you. From beginning to end, prayer is our first labor of love, our first move of mission. It must precede our activity. It must receive our first energy, our highest urgency, our greatest earnestness, our deepest conviction, and our maximum engagement. Why? Because when you know the Savior who's all sufficient and you see the need of people that's insurmountable, you'll begin to heed Jesus' call to engage the mission and pray for the Lord to send more laborers. And before you start praying for Bill and John and Susie and Mary and all the other people you can think of that God could use, that's not what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) Saying, God, move in me to see the world the way it really is and to remember you for who you really are and to realize that you've put me here for this moment, for this relationship, for this situation to bring the truth of an all-sufficient Savior to bear upon this insurmountable problem by bearing a faithful witness of his love, of his compassion, of his grace and of his truth. Jesus calls Christ followers to engage his kingdom mission by praying for more harvest laborers.